Hello, I'm Mike Mulvihill, and you're welcome along to episode two of our stories from the show bands and the ballrooms that we've all heard about. To begin episode two, a man who featured on episode one as well, Stephen Travers of the Miami Show Band, who shares stories now with me about what it was like travelling to the gigs. You know, the Miami was based in Dublin, and I also had a, a house down in uh, in Carrick and Shore in South Tipperary. So, if we were around that area, say if we went, uh, if we were playing in Tramore or some place like that, you know, I would bring my own car and maybe stay in the house down there and uh, meet some friends or whatever. But usually, it was in the, it was in the tour bus, and these tour buses uh, were practical buses. Uh, you know, the gear would be gone off in a van in the Miami. We had. We had a, a Volkswagen minibus for ourselves, and we also then had a, a Volkswagen van for, for the gear where the roadie went off with that. But I think that gives you an indication of, you know, that there weren't big elaborate PA systems if it would fit in a Volkswagen van. So PA systems were relatively small. But then again, there were other bands like Tweed, uh, who came from our hometown. They were into having the big, big PA systems and the bass spins and huge systems. The Platterman, I think, also had a quite big the systems. But I think the show bands were very, very self-contained. Very little expense when it came to uh, touring, as opposed to a lot of the bands that came on afterwards that that used huge lighting rigs and everything like that. There was nothing like that in the in the, in the halcyon days of the show bands. Now, when you would be on the tour bus with the rest of the band, how did you spend your time on the bus travelling to the gigs? I'm sure there was lots of fun too along the way. So, well, when I joined the Miami first, uh, when Fran was in the band, God rest him, Fran and Tony and Brian, at that time you, you had a cassette player system in the car and so somebody would bring along, the, whether it was the Eagles or maybe Edgar Winter. I think that was the last one I remember us playing, uh, the Edgar Winter White Trash. So it was very much rock bands we were into. Uh, uh, but then when we went on stage, we were playing everything from the Beach Boys to, uh, you know, the, the latest pops or whatever. But there was always good banter, good camaraderie. I never heard anybody while the others were having a good laugh. Fran was very funny. Brian was very funny fella. And I, Tony and I, which we never stopped talking about guitars and amplifiers. And it was it was lovely social scene in the in the van, yeah. Hubie Reynolds and Noel McPartland now recall the dancing days at Cloudland in Ruski. Cloudland uh, in Ruski was on of a Saturday night, and uh, yeah, was was some of the Reynolds's. Uh, they owned that. They were they were uh, good business people too, and and they ran. They had all the top bands there as well. And he opened up several, uh, yeah, the Cloudland, the Jetland, God knows how many. Dreamland, Furyland, Dream, all of those. Yeah, but it was, it was it was a fantastic time. Ballrooms, as you say, with the land, uh, Jetland in Limerick, uh, Dreamland in Athy, all of those places. Uh, would have been, yeah, would have been Reynolds ballrooms. I'll say one thing for Albert, he looked after the bands very well. You know, you went there and you got a very well treated and, uh, you know, proper meal. And if you were staying over, you had proper dressing rooms and all that. That wasn't the case everywhere. But Albert was, uh, he was a great promoter, knew his business. And uh, I remember when he, he launched my book in 2007 and uh, we had a good chat about that. And uh, 
he, he made the point of saying that if you look after the bands, they look after you. And that was the case. There were other promoters who didn't uh, plough money back into their venues and those venues didn't really last. Sean O'Dowd of Dingaling now shares this story about the dancing days in Ruski. While I'm at it, they had a small ballroom in Ruski and Albert Reynolds told me that my mother often played there. This is before the Cloudland, of course. This is when the small little halls. But yes, they, getting back to the Reynolds brothers, yeah, they had the pick of the bands then. All the big bands wanted to play because there were the big halls. And big halls meant big crowds. Big crowds meant big take on the door. So there, there were other uh, chains of ballrooms as well, like uh, Con Hines from Port Tumna. He was involved in another chain of ballrooms. The Reynolds brothers set a precedent. They were the first to get the message that there was a huge, huge thing happening coming down the line. And that was the show band industry. And they got ready for it and they built the ballrooms and they picked the best sites they could find all over the country and they put their money where their mouth was. Hubie Reynolds and Helen Toulon now recall their memories of Ruski at that time. Well, Ruski then at that time was going well because the factories were on, you know, the Hanley's factory was there and there was a lot of employment and there was a lot of people living around really, like, you know. Yes, there was, yeah, yeah. Ruski was thriving that time. It was really busy. And a Saturday night, it was really, really full and there was great show bands. Now, as you would look around and you'd be there, was there people from all over? Yes, there was, yeah, all over. So uh, a Saturday night, you'd have to be in the cloudland early because there'd be a massive crowd in it, you know. It used to fill up fairly quick because if you were there early, like you'd always be sure to get in early and that kind of thing, you know, yeah. Because there were brilliant bands in it, Jean Stewart and Big Tom and Susan McCann and Philomena Begley and the Indians and a lot of them brought a big crowd. Out of all the people around Carrigan are all there with all Longford and all would go to Ruski. That was the place to go to was Ruski and it would be packed with people. And that was fantastic going into Ruski. Royal Chauvin and all would be there in Miami and all those bands would be there at it. It was a great place to go to at that time. It was very well done now, very well organised and everything, you know, there was loads of loads of space anywhere. They had a minerkel bar and uh, you danced then to two o'clock in the morning and it was it was quite it was very enjoyable. Evelyn McCabe and Noel McPartland remember the mineral bar. Yeah, it was always uh, a lemonade or an orange. There was no such thing as drinking. Now an odd girl would drink but it wasn't it wasn't on at all, no. And you would see an odd fella, you know, might be drunk or whatever. But you wouldn't get the drink in the hall. You were drinking orange all night. Not like social distancing now or anything like there was none of that that time. And I suppose Saturday night was a, was a good night as well. When you got used to before that, people, Saturday night wasn't a good night because you had to be out for mass of a Sunday morning and everything like that. That again, the day out too, uh, people started going to uh, a Saturday night to the dances, you know. So, yeah, the Cloudland was massive. I, uh, we used to hit the Cloudland nearly every Saturday night. It was it was in the mobile first and the Cloudland then, you know. Yeah, I suppose people would have started going to mass on their way to the dance. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the way it came in, all right, yeah. How would things be from there, we'll say, we're getting ready for it and getting to it? Well, um, you see, I worked in Ruski, you know, but I used to get get home early and uh, I'd get ready. I'd be a lot of preparing for going. 
and particularly like if there was a good band you'd have to barely try and go early enough because there could be a queue I think for the club band they used to put on buses you know, to bust the people into it, really, you know. John James Gilmartin from Kilclar in County Leitrim now shares this story, which also involves my own dad, Bernard Mulvihill, and a trip to Ruski. We, in 1959, we went to Ruski. We bought a car, Paddy Mullen, Bernie Jomaville, and Tommy Rin, and myself. We went there and dancing to them, or the cloud landed in. We come home about two o'clock in the morning and we start talking to other and then it'd be four o'clock or five o'clock before we got home. We had to go to work next day. So there's at that time there's a lot of people cycling on bicycles. You and your mates at the time borrowing the car. There was a good story behind that. We could borrow a car that time and the four of us went up, it could be five of us went up to Ruski that time and we danced the night away and we came back again and we left back the car and in all good faith and thing. But that's in 1959, that's a long time ago. And and, and the, the, the people that, that owned the car, they were asleep inside. And oh, you were able well, to, sheep, well, sheep, yeah. You were able to push it out and push it, push in it back and in, yeah. And, 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 they, were very good, they were very good people, you know, I, I knew them well, yeah. Yeah, and did, that, and did they ever find out? Never, no, I never found out. <laughs> we have to go forget about them things, you know. <laughs> There's a great story I heard about your first visit to the Mayflower. Yes, this is the true as there's a God in heaven. I said to my dad, I need to go to see this band. And I said, would it be possible to borrow the car? I'll be very, very careful. You see, I knew how to drive. My dad taught us how to drive on the way home from school, from, from SNA. He taught every one of us how to drive as kids when we were 12, 13 taught us how to drive. So so when I was 15, we'll say I could manage a car very well. I could drive. So he said, yeah, you can have the car. So I left at eight o'clock, drove down to Drumshambo, drove into this big car park, found out where the ballroom was. I had a vague idea and I was the only car in the car park. And I said, hmm, what's happening here? Did I get the wrong date? No. So I walk up and the door of the ballroom is open. I can see myself doing it. And I said, uh, one ticket, please. And there was somebody in the box office. And they just stared at me and said, okay. And they gave me a ticket. And I walked in and I was the only person in the ballroom. And I sat down on the side. They had benches around the side of the, of the ballroom. Said. I sat down there and waited. Of course, I was too early. Uh, but the band came out and they came out for rehearsal, but they were dressed up. They were ready to go because there was no relief bands then. Yeah. The, the show bands, even the Royal Show Band. And this is just, this is just for history for people who, who like the show band. The Royal Show Band were the first people to use relief bands. They were the first people to make a record. They were the first to make a movie. And they were the first to go on percentage of the door. And that was through their manager, T.J. Byrne. They looked amazing. They had perfectly tailored suits, beautiful shoes, instruments gleaming, and a lovely set of equipment on stage. Uh, just like a dream to me. And then they went into this rehearsal. And they rehearsed this song called Come On, Let's Go. When you were working in Ruski, 
and a band might have been down to play in Cloudland later on that night. Did you ever see them around the village earlier before the concert or was there ever any talk about bands or such and such a band is in the village getting ready for tonight? Or? No, i never seen any of them in the village. No, you wouldn't see them around. But, well, I never did anyway, no. Uh, certainly with, with, with the early bands that I was in, yeah, you would have time and you'd maybe take a stroll around, especially this time of year, the summertime. It was, uh, it was lovely. I think I was in every town and village in Ireland, townland as well when it came to the marquees, and I loved that. With the Miami, it wasn't like that. You didn't get to walk around the town. Very, very, that'd be a rare thing. Unless you're staying over, if you're staying in a, in a hotel nearby or something like that, you might get maybe a half an hour or something after lunch or something because we never booked in for bed and breakfast. It was always bed and lunch because if you got in at four or five in the morning, you certainly weren't going to get up at eight o'clock for, for breakfast. We would always have established what time we can get into the ballroom and we would get in maybe five o'clock, six o'clock and we would set up the gear. We would then run through the few new songs that we'd be doing, then we would all relax and go for something to eat. We would have a meal, not a big meal. We'd have whatever we liked, fish and chips or a steak or in the local cafes or the local whatever, or maybe there was a meal provided for us. And then we would come back to the ball and we might, we used to play a little game called shuttlecock. It was like if you're playing uh, badminton, but we'd play it by hand on the dance floor and uh We'd have a bit of fun with that. Then we'd go into the dressing room. Some of the guys might wander around the town, have a look at what little groups are playing in pubs and that. And then they'd come back to the ballroom. And then the crowds would start coming in. And maybe there'd be a relief band on before us. When I say a relief band, there'd be a support band. Uh, there'd be a local band. And they would play maybe from nine until half eleven at the case may be if it was half eleven uh, to half one dance or a twelve to two dance whatever and you'd hear that this buzz long before that you'd hear noise you'd hear crowds you'd hear laughter you'd hear cars pulling in you'd hear cars screeching around the car park and you'd hear Bethlehem starting to the the volume would start to rise and rise and rise and rise and then it would be time for us to go on stage and the band would come on stage and thank the support band and they would play us a song and then they would say ladies and gentlemen would you welcome on stage the one and only Sean O'Dowd da, 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 da. you know when I when I played in the the likes of with Delahunty um, you arrived in plenty of time make sure you put your own gear up you did your own sound check and uh, uh, or with a band like the Cowboys or I did a, a couple of nights with other bands as well um, so you know, you got there maybe at about six o'clock, seven o'clock in, in, in the afternoon, the evening, and uh, you did all of your own work. But with the Miami, uh, we would just arrive 20 minutes before before we were due to start. We would walk in, the gear would be on stage, everything would be set up for us. Uh, the road manager would hand, hand you your suit, which would have been maybe one of the suits that you wore and dry cleaned and everything like that and step into that get a quick cup of tea and walk out at the end of it then you signed uh, uh, the autographs for five minutes and you were gone uh, that, but that's a different thing not everybody had that experience I often sat there for an hour signing cards and photographs and uh, thanking them for coming and uh, they'd slag you and 
have a laugh with you and tell you there were other bands better and you should go see this fella, that fella, the other fella and they'd say, ah no, we're only joking, we'll come back to see you again. And it would have just, we made a lot of friends. There were friends, apart from fans, there were friends. You got to know them and you got to know what they liked on certain songs and you'd do requests for them. But we were go, 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 go kind of a band. And then the ballroom would empty out and the silence would come again. The lads would be taking the equipment down and then you see the lights going off place calming down and the quietness and the car park emptying out and a couple of stragglers and the doors would close and the bar and the lights would go off we'd get into our cars we always nearly always headed for home we, we weren't a stayover band we'd head for home and get home at four or five or six or seven in the morning turn off my vehicle in home have a glass of milk or a coffee or something into bed and that went on day in, day out. Radio Caroline North. Many will know that radio jingle from Radio Caroline. But did you know the radio station had a Leitrim connection? Caroline, yes, I can see the songs from Caroline. Yeah, that's what you see. I always listen to Caroline, yeah. 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 Caroline was great, yeah. And I mean, the guy that had the Caroline put the money into it had someone involved with Drum Harney, wasn't it? What is his name? Very famous name. Um, Very famous is some families were involved with the... O'Reilly. O'Reilly owned it. And he sold the... Was it the roof or something to pay for Radio Caroline? We didn't know that we had any connection with it at all. I never knew that all the time I listened to Radio Caroline. And I understand he sold something down there, roof or whatever, to pay for Radio Caroline. And Larry Cunningham then... During the Radio Caroline days, they played his song, the tribute to Jim Reeves, once per week. And it was from that one play every week that Larry went into the UK charts. Jim Reeves was killed in an air crash and later on, the late Eddie Masterson wrote a tribute to him. I recorded it, County Wicklow. It was released on the King record label. The record got one play per week on Radio Caroline. And that took us into the British charts. John Flynn. I mean, like, even, uh, like, Sir Larry Cunningham saved Jim Reeves, uh, total embarrassment in Donegal. Uh, he, he, was, he, he was there to help out in Jim Reeves, who took some dislike to a piano or something, and he left the stage, whereas Larry played for the rest of the night and the place was packed. Lots of Irish artists were featured on Radio Caroline including Frankie McBride and the Polka Dots, Dickie Rock, Sean Fagan, the Dubliners, Eileen Reid and Big Tom and the Mainliners. Dubliners kept playing it, yeah, Seven Drunken Nights and they appeared on top of the Pops. <laughs> it was brilliant. What do you mean thinking an Irishman that that, you know, we didn't really think it at the time, but it was amazing, isn't it, really? You know, that time when they were releasing music, they weren't really releasing the music to make a living. They were releasing the music to get, hopefully, radio to play it and then mention where they were going to be playing. You know, here's the Dixies and you can see them tonight in Cloudland. Yes, that's right, yeah. That's exactly it, yeah. And they were great advertising, like, for you know, where they were playing and all that kind of thing. And then you'd get the Leitrim Observer and you'd see where they were playing it. The local paper was everything, Mike. Uh, because we can go back and get all the records of who played 
when they played, how much it was get in, and what time the dance was over. Uh, because we, they weren't recorded. People hadn't the facility to record them, which is all the pity that we couldn't be playing back what was played in the 40s and 50s in some of the ballrooms. Um, I, rem- <laughs> I remember when we lived in Cox's Cross, uh, <clears throat> there, there was a woman called Mrs. French. She was a school teacher, and she used to visit my dad. Uh, but she used to visit my dad at a certain time uh, on a Thursday evening, and it was it always coincided with the Elvis Presley show being broadcast from Radio Luxembourg. And I used to dread to see her coming because my dad would make make me turn down the radio. So I remember standing on the washing machine, uh, an old washing machine with a, a flat top on it, and I would have my ear to the radio for the Elvis Presley show. When I heard Heartbreak Hotel, it turned me upside down. What is this music? What is this all about? Since my baby left, Papa, and it was, Christ, what is this? And then when I saw the guy. I saw photos of this guy, Elvis. Of course, I wanted to look like him, sound like him, sing like him, comb my hair like him, uh, turn my lip up like him, all that kind of thing. It just took me over. It, w- it was the biggest influence of my life, Elvis Presley, uh, with regard to uh, image and singing and moving and the whole persona, you know, the dress, the white shoes, the turned up collar. Yeah, Elvis... I could I could rabbit on about Elvis forever. Now looking back, stage presence. Who do you think really had it in the show band? George Olin and the Drifters, my big favourite. Yeah. 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 What did they have that nobody else had? Music. The the music was different. It was whatever it, it must be the instruments in the band, the George Olin and the Drifters. But George Olin's voice was an absolutely fantastic singer. There was something special about them. You had music on a par with anything in the world, Mike. They could sing Hank, they could sing um, any of the American singers. The Irish bands could play them, could perform them. They could be replicated in any of the marquees to quite exceptional bands. And I, I, when you think of the distinctive sound of the mainliners, Joe Dolan, he was in a different class as well. And of course, Brendan Boyer had come from a classical background his father had, uh, had been in classical music. And and in the, the, the Brendan O'Brien, O'Brien, the Dixies, they were of a status that we probably won't see in such abundance in Ireland again. We would have heard singers on a par with, with Bono or anyone else in the ballrooms, even though we didn't realise that, but that was true. Some folks run and others hide, but there ain't nothing they can do. And some folks put on armour, but the arrows go straight through. So you see, there's no escape, so why not face it and admit that you love those little arrows when they hurt On the 28th of May 2020, the sad news broke that Brendan Boyer had passed away. He was best known for fronting the Royal Show Band, a band which he founded with Tom Dumphy. They went on to form the Big Eight, and they had five number one hits in Ireland. Yeah, and you see, when when, it's, when you look at it closer, you see, so you take, for instance, one member of that band, that particular... Now, DJ Corton had fronted a band, a fairly famous Kerry band, 
and then Paddy Cole the same and Paddy had grown out of the, the, the bigger bands the, the darkest type bands Dickie Rock and the Miami show band then wanted to try it out and they went to America but yeah, it didn't really no, work out for them no and they said that Dickie was uh, the per- uh, that he sang too much Frank Sinatra you see and you don't sing Frank Sinatra on his own back garden but we would we would know Dickie not as singing Frank and he may have sing Frank fine but we would know him as Georgie Pardy or, or, or a, a nice singer or a candy store you know that was our thing Brendan Boyer and his particular group they were talented you now because like Elvis Elvis came to see them he didn't come he didn't he wasn't pushed there or whatever and it seems then uh, as they played um, the Beatles actually played opening for the Royal in, in, in Liverpool you know in 1960 60, around the early 60s they came and played locally and they never got big headed and we didn't make them big headed either we didn't pass any remarks but we we were probably experiencing the time, the cream, and and it's an era that they say couldn't be repeated. But the big eight, yeah, that was a huge band. <laughs> that was brilliant, now absolutely, yeah, yeah. That was well done, now and very good. Yeah. Did you see the big eight? I did, yeah, surely, sure. I seen them all nearly, yeah. I did indeed, yeah. The Big Eight, a very popular band who spent a lot of time touring, especially across the water, in Las Vegas. It was there that the king of rock and roll himself, Elvis Presley, would often attend concerts to see Brendan Boyer and his band on stage. In 1975, when the band had returned to Ireland to play a tour, news broke that Tom Dumphy had been killed in a car crash travelling to one of those gigs. They'd been, at this time, they'd have been home from the States. You know, they'd be coming home during the summer. They were the Big Eight at this yeah, time. Yeah, the, the Big Eight, and they were in uh, in uh, Las Vegas. They were heading to the Mary of Dunlow Festival in Donegal. And he had been going to the Big Eight, and they were playing on a Tuesday night. And that's right. That's right. Oh, yeah. Oh, they were very good. I liked Tom Dunlow. He was killed over us as uh, Masonite. Actually, I remember the evening well when he was killed because uh, uh, I was going over to pick up a lady friend at the time <laughs> and uh, I used to go that way fairly regular and uh, it was a big a big tragedy uh, at the time as well yeah Tom Dunphy was was massive at the time too you know yeah it was it was a big uh, it was a big blow but yeah do I remember I was just rehearsing dingling at the time we started in September 75 and I remember uh, the news hit us like a sledgehammer because it was so close to home as well, so close to where Dad was teaching. You know, it was only, uh, you know, out the road from the turn-off for Drumsna School. Uh, it was near the turn-off for Mohal. It was like the death of, the equivalent to the death of Elvis in Ireland, like he was such a legend. Huge sadness, um, to the show band fraternity as well as the the fans and the people uh, who idolised him. He was the guy who made the first show band record ever and his death was a, a huge loss. I remember hearing it now when I thought it was horrendous, like it was an awful tragedy. Yeah. Oh, tragedy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that was a big thing. It was a... Tom Duffy to win an accident up and I did up, I think. I was coming from Tullamore 
with my late boss, Raymond Laird. And we were coming down the hill at Anadoff. And this big Granada car passed us. They had come from Waterford and they were heading up to Bundorn uh, to pick up Brendan Boyer when they were heading on to the Mary from Dunlow Festival in Donegal that evening. And by the time we got on the stretch, we could see the act. The, the, his car was in, stuck in the ditch. And uh, we came on the scene. It was only after happening. It was just one of these things that bad accident. He was cut in the corner and lost control and hit, hit the lorry. And that was it. And was it Tom that was driving at the time? Tom was driving and then his guitarist then, or the B8 guitarist was then Noel Ryan. There was a case because there was cars coming sliding in all directions and it was a wet, the road was wet and at that time there was a very, very bad corner. Uh, when I say a very bad corner, there was a lot of accidents at the corner, whether it was the camber of the road or the surface of the road, I don't know, but uh, it was just absolutely pandemonium and then um, we were all hanging on there then and we said the car's pulling up and she, we didn't know who it was. I remember going driving along the road and this somebody stopped me on the road. I think some man stopped me. And he says, there's been an accident. And he says, I wonder why well, you could get a doctor or something. So I stopped my car and went over across the road and um, we saw him and there was two men in the car. And I went around to the passenger side and I could see the driver. I don't know who he was, of course. And I, I, I said to, to the guy who was mumbling, I said, uh, what's your name? And when Noel Ryan came to, uh, he was unconscious, and when he came to in the car, he said, this is Tom Dunphy. So he didn't realise, of course, or we didn't realise that Tom was gone at that stage, you know. But that was it, you know. And what time of the day was it? It would be probably about 6.30, I'd say, in the evening because we had to finish working in Carrick at 6 o'clock so giving myself a rough to 20 minutes half an hour we said he'd get that far you know yeah. the other occupants of the car as well so that was literally it about half 6 in the evening a wet evening Lord rest his soul and I still remember it to this day I can, I can picture the scene and everything at it and I said you know there was no mobile phones very few people had a phone in their house so what we could do is ask somebody would they go into Carrick and get a doctor from Carrick to come out and get the ambulance or whatever so we went into Carrick and we and other people had done the same thing, gone in and, and reported the accident. And it was poor Tom Dunphy, he was killed instantly, really. I knew the ambulance came and I actually was there when the poor man was... I didn't know it at the time it was Tom Dunphy. I just said, who, who is this man? He says, the big eighth, I think. And uh, I remember looking, I saw the wedding ring in his finger and I remember the doctor saying, I think he's, he's, he's gone or something like that. I said, oh, his poor wife, now she hears this, you know. But only the two of the minute. The other guys escaped. He was obviously very injured. I think he was brought to Longford Hospital, and he survived. But poor Dom was, was killed. But it was a, a different scene now, you know, but the ambulance comes out and there's paramedics on it and there's every sort of medical treatment you can get. Completely different world than it is now. The paramedics are so very well capable people and the medical people and the, everything in the ambulance. That time there was nothing really, you know. And the doctor just came there. But Lord rest his soul, yeah. I loved uh, Tom Dunphy singing. Actually, I preferred Tom Dunphy, even though I was a big Elvis fan, to Tom Dunphy singing. He had that skiffle music and he had all that other stuff he used to sing, you know. It was something different as a band. In Drumsna, beside Mohill Cross, to mark the spot, a memorial was erected. That was the main road where, where that is now. And um, 
I, I'm just trying to that road would, would now you have a straight straight stretch right there by the Mughal Road, you know. But you turn in at Mason out there, and then you take a quick turn, and that's for the that's for the um, where the memorial is now. So I'm here at the site of the Tom Dumphy Memorial outside of Drumsna and I'm with Desi Shandley. We can walk up here to the monument and to the memorial of Tom Dumphy, Desi. And, you know, it's lovely to have this here to remember Tom. Well, I think it's very important. Uh, what happened, how I got involved, first of all, was... Um, as you see, the monument here, along with Jimmy McGee and the All Stars, they used to fundraise and stuff and have games between uh, musicians and show bands and stuff like that. So they um, erected this monument. It was a brilliant idea altogether. So you would see people that you'd see the stage tugging out, and, and Jimmy McGee usually got a local team or a county team or whatever, a parish team, to play them. And they funded that in 75, I think. And of course, as, as you can see, the road is bypassed, and uh, some travellers had arrived on the scene and they tied their donkeys or whatever to the monument. And the, the donkeys obviously took off, and the monument was flattened. So I just said to myself, if it had happened belonged to me in Waterford or something like that, and someone was looking after it, I said to myself, I'd like to, to have someone to look after it. So Patsy Kiluli, another neighbour of myself, got it rectified and right it back into place. And then from that on, I used to keep a keep it clean around the place and stuff like that and trim the hedges, you know. So you look after this and you maintain this area Correct. all the time all on the a time. voluntary basis? Oh yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. If I roll back the years a bit, um, I was based in Waterford and I happened to work along with Tom's son, youngest son, Colm, and um, it wound up that um, we, I got to know the family fairly well then and also Tom's sister Terry and her husband Jeffrey, and um, literally I just looked after the monument and at the 35th anniversary I got it inscribed again and re-sandblasted and uh, then for the 40th we formed a committee and uh, we decided that we'd get it re-inscribed re and engraved and actually put on some music symbols onto it, you know. So that's what we did and um, that was for the... 40th anniversary back in 2015 so this year then was the 45th anniversary. Yes and uh, some years back actually we, 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 we celebrated the 40th anniversary of Tom's passing you see and we, we, we uh, Brendan Boyer actually came in and his daughter Ashley came to it. Again we say for the 40th we had members of the Big Eight and the, and the late Royal, the Royal as well with Eddie Sullivan, Jerry Cullen Brendan, of course, Brendan Boyer himself and Noel Ryan that was in the car with Tom. They were all up for the, uh, the that was the musicians. But then we had Tom's daughter, Caroline, and Tom's two sisters, Maureen and uh, Terry, and uh, par members of the family as well. So we had a good celebration and we wound up with um, the, the, the event after the Mass in Anduff Church. Father Ryan Darcy uh, officiated as a celebrant, chief celebrant. It was really nice. It was the nicest mass that was ever at. It was a folk mass that was singing. There was everything at it. And Father Brian Darcy was there. And it was a great tribute to Tom Dunphy. 
we were back down here at the Monument then after that and then we went to Lock Island Hotel where the Minehan brothers from Wex were playing. So in all in all it was a very, very successful thing. And good job we did because like as you know now Brendan is gone as well. Yeah. He passed on this year, you know, and like there's no one who's getting any younger, so the members of the show band is sort of getting it's getting on in years too, so like we said, I mean I think we'd done it right when we did it for the fortieth. So we had Brendan Boyer back in Drumshambo and of course there were people there who had been at his dance in the past. There was one woman in particular had a signed autograph of his dance and days, like you know, so That's very special that from Shambo, you could say, was. I know Kilrona had him after for a cabaret, but he's probably his last time in Eton for bringing by here, like you know. So. So, Desi, when we're standing here at the monument, you know, it's surrounded by flags. Yes, um, we have, of course, Thomas from Waterford. So we have Port Lorigal flag, we say, with uh, CLG on it. And then we have the tricolour in the middle. And, of course, we have lovely Leitrim flag on the other side of it. And the problem is to keep them up with the storms and the high winds and stuff like that, you know. But I intend to put up three right flagpoles and we have them right and we can pull them up and down whenever we want and another thing which was introduced locally here around Rumsnaz, the Anthony Trollope Way, and this is part of the area on that sure walk where people can walk by it and stop mm-hmm. and say a prayer. Mm-hmm. And well, it's right beside the Anthony Trollope Walk in here the, into the cemetery, right behind it, you know, the old cemetery as well. It's just right beside St. Anne's Church as well, you know. And um, I'm probably looking after the monument now uh, 36, 37, 38 years. Yeah. You know, so it's quite a while, and until I close my eyes, I look after it, and that's the thing. Kind of that I do it on a voluntary basis, and that's the only way to do it. You know, you know. I'd like it if it was done. If it was, if anything belonged to me, died in Waterford or was killed in Waterford, I'd like someone there to do it. You know, and as I said, I know the family. I was down at Morris funeral last year as well. You know, so that's the way life goes. A lot of people have said since that was the, the day or the the week that music died, because you lost tragically. Uh, Tom, and then you lost the, 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 most of the Miami, and you know, absolutely horrific. I remember actually couldn't believe it because I was flying back from America on an Aer Lingus flight, and, and uh, the, one of the Irish papers were there. I hadn't heard it in America. The horror of the north of Ireland that had, had, had affected what was assembled. And they had been playing, the Miami were very popular in the north of Ireland, and had been playing to both Catholic and Protestants, and they were both traditions going to them I was on the road actually for Lairds at the time and as it turned out that particular night or that particular evening I was staying in Dundalk uh, and then I was going on the next day to back to Drogheda then home and the word came through about the Miami show about being, being um, ambushed and it was I think there were three or two or three killed in it that was 75. I remember that well, all right. I was working in Ruski at the time. Yeah. That was terrible. Yes, and that's my birthday, 31st of July, so I certainly won't ever forget that. 
I was um, my landlady uh, called me earlier than normal that morning and she said there's been a terrible tragedy some of your friends have been killed she said it's a it's a it's a band called the Miami show band she said some of them have been killed in the north in an explosion and like shockwaves through the whole industry you know I mean the north of Ireland was a powerful place to play and you know Fran O'Toole such a beautiful singer and the yeah. show band are yeah. very talented yeah. bunch of musicians and going about their business coming back from playing yeah. Yeah. getting ready looking forward to the next night yeah. and probably playing again and it all changed then on the side of the road that was trouble going in that time in the north. But like that time every day, there was a murder in in in, Ireland, in order in Ireland. Every single day, there was a Protestant killed, there was a Catholic killed, there was some terrible things. But um, I just loved Fran O'Toole singing, and it was it was an awful, tra- terrible, terrible, terrible tragedy. And and then there was such a great band. It was really I didn't realise it was a mixed band. If there were Protestants and Catholics on it at all, I didn't realise it at that time at all. I mean, they were just a band, a fantastic band. Yeah. Dickie Rock had gone and they had they had started up, and they were brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And he was a brilliant, wonderful singer. It was an awful time altogether. I never forgot Fran at all. He was such a wonderful singer and he had such a great future, you know. It was, it was such a sad thing, really. The bands didn't play in the North as much after that. A lot of bands didn't want to go up the North because of the, the, the risk, the security risk. Yeah. You see, and as well as that, like we said, I mean, as we were saying earlier on there, we said, I mean, bands couldn't play in the South, say, through Lent. And you used to have to go to England or the North and stuff like that, you know. The horror of the North of Ireland that had, had, had affected what was assembled. And they had been playing, the Miami were very popular in the North of Ireland and had been playing to both Catholic and Protestants. And they were both traditions going to their music and meeting each other there. And that, then that, that something like that could happen. Now, I wasn't a huge uh, draw up in the North because we didn't work it. I worked the West of Ireland most and the South and maybe a little down the east coast, but I wasn't a big draw up the north because I lived in Limerick and bands closer to the border were bigger up the north. It was a slightly shorter journey, if that makes any sense to you. But um, we just stopped in our tracks. A lot of bands stopped playing uh, the north after that. And uh, the whole tragedy was played out. It was on television. And Stephen Travers, which is a very good friend of mine to this day, was uh, a survivor of that and uh, Steve uh, keeps a light shining on that whole tragedy he doesn't let it die or fade away uh, he's uh, he is uh, looking for answers all the time and of course the, the answers are hard to come by but it was a shocking tragedy a shocking tragedy could you describe for us what it would have been like to be at a dance that time just after Tom Dumphy's death and what had happened to the Miami show band? I can't really remember much, but I remember all the trauma of the time. And um, it just, it was terrible, really. I don't think the present generation can understand what it was life at that time. Mm. Yeah. It was life at that time. 
I think the band stopped going up and down. And then the thing, the the band started to, you could say, go their own way. Did ah yeah, I think uh, you know before that, all right. You know the bands used to go up the north quite regular. It was it was the same. They played all over Ireland. They they didn't recognise the borders at all. Their music didn't recognise any borders. But after that, I suppose it was, you know, it was uh, it was only, you know, that it's. It, they didn't take the chance and you couldn't blame them, you know. It was inevitable that they were going to stop going up. There were some of them that, that did keep going, like, you know, but ah, there were there were, uh, there were bad times, to see, and, and the people just, the bands just didn't, uh, they didn't travel up there and it was a big loss to the music industry in up in Northern Ireland because, you know, they couldn't get the big acts really, like, you know, so. Uh, but I suppose then, having said that, they played around here maybe more often, so, you know. It was, yeah. I mean, it was a 32-county phenomenon. Um, the North, and especially Derry, Derry uh, produced, punched well above its weight when it came to musicians. A lot of that came from the unemployment uh, that was uh, prevalent in Derry um, because people didn't have, uh, you know, they had, they had time on their hands. And so the, the, the men... A lot of the men uh, supplemented the, the the earnings of the wives who would have perhaps worked in some of the uh, uh, the factories, like the short factories. I think uh, Phil Coulter's song mentions that uh, uh, the 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 men on the dole played the mother's role. It was a great way to 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 supplement the earnings if you had a talent like that. So there's a huge amount of bands came out came out of the uh, out of Derry. I remember bands like I think the Emperors and people like that. They were just fabulous. Uh, fabulous players and but there were very few uh, bands there was only about a handful of bands that you could say were what they used to call 32 county bands there were some bands that were very very popular in the uh, in the cities that perhaps would not have drawn big crowds in the uh, in the country areas um, but I think there was about we, we reckon there was about five or six bands that that were could play both the cities and the country uh, places. Uh, the Miami would have been won, certainly the Royal, the the, the Capital, um, the Cadets, I think, uh, Joe Dolan. There was, a, there was about about a half dozen bands that you could say that could play everywhere. Oh, there were some fantastic bands, like, really, really was. I suppose locally where we are, you know, one of the show band stars was born in Jamestown, Sean O'Dowd from Dingaling. Dingaling, that's right. Yeah, and yeah. would that have been an artist oh, yeah, that yeah, you went yeah. to oh, see? Oh, definitely, yeah. Well, his Sean O'Dowd's father would have taught me or tried to teach me in Aldo school, <laughs> you know, and uh, I would have known the Dows fairly well that time as well. No, Sean O'Dowd was fantastic. I suppose he was the ear of the pop. He had a great beat to him. And yes, they were in some ways booking the trend because they, say, like, say, the. the the energy of say Brennan Boyer and the, 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 there was a distant memory to some people you see it really was beginning to ease off the opportunities weren't there certainly the numbers weren't there Mike. the numbers wouldn't go you you, you could have a problem uh, booking a band and get to fill a hall but Sean O'Dowd brought a sort of a, almost like a, a resurgence I think he, he came into the early 80s we ended up at uh been probably probably one of the top drawing bands in the country now when i say that mike i want to point out that it was only for a short period of time from 1979 to 1981 82 was huge for us 
Now, whereas other bands might have 10 or 15 years of being huge, I had a short uh, slot there, but it was very big. Uh, the early 80s, there was little or nothing happening for the for the musicians. Uh, discos had taken a firm grip. The ballrooms had effectively collapsed. The, the band scene, the band scene uh, wasn't progressing uh, like it should because, you know, people have to remember that, you know, a lot of the bands that came out there were or were playing original music. Now the Miami played played original music insofar as it possibly was allowed. Uh, but the but when the when these change when changes happened and that Irish bands saw an opportunity perhaps to break into uh, other markets, you know, bands like Bagatelle in the around that time, uh, the lookalikes, uh, these bands, they didn't concentrate on dance music, um, as you can imagine. And they concentrated on, you know, on, on record sales. And uh, so there wasn't uh, an industry there catering, catering for ballrooms. So ballrooms were, were built for people to dance in. So that's why they, you know, that industry seemed to, seemed to disappear. And it had its day. I, I reckon that the, uh, the, the lifespan of the, the real show bands, and they were the, they, they were the, during the show band days was when the ballrooms really, really did well. But that lasted for about 15 years, early early 60s up until about 75, uh, 77, around that, that, that time. Uh, and that was about the, about the size of it. Would the marquee experience be something different and separate to the ballroom? It was very different. It was very, very different. It was, and it was completely. Um, it, it, it was less formality, and, and I wouldn't think you'd have the same uh, formality of the girls on one side. I think all that began to, and, and you'd, you'd just be moving around, and, and, and the ballroom catered for a lot more. Like there'd be no, there'd be no problem. Like you know, getting two to three thousand in a um, good ballroom, and that'd be a five, a five pole ballroom. You see, or a four, like you know. And at the time of the marquee, was it still with the same law? No bar on no, the no bar, and no, no, no bar. No, although I think in the latter time, uh, I know in the latter time, like that, you could move a license as as you can now. But I think that some applied for a license and they were able to do that. There was carnivals, you see, and there was a carnival here in Enoch years ago. We were all young ones at the time. Uh, down in the field down the road here beside Nutley's at one time and there was good bands playing there too. Now would but that carnival would that have been what they referred to as the marquee which yes, came along? Yes it was yeah it was. Now another band that would have been very popular on the scene was the Clancy Brothers Oh yes yeah, the Clancy Brothers but sure, um, the Clancy Brothers and we I mean if you if you had an iron sweater you had to have it white, Mike, you know, it, it really was the start of the folk music and the folk tradition. And they, they brought they brought back some of the old great Irish songs and they brought them back to, to, so people could sing along. First time I was ever in a ballroom was um, the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem were playing. And I have cousins that went to England to work and... Uh, one of my cousins, Seamus McCabe, came back and I was telling him about the Clancy Brothers and he's, he, he had a car anyway and he was bringing a crowd to the Mayflower and he said, if you want to come, come along with us. So I went down to the Mayflower and it was absolutely, the first time I was ever in a hall, it was absolutely 
part. And what I remember about, I remember hearing the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem in it, but you couldn't move. You were just like sardines in a tin, wasn't it? And uh, you could see, they also nearly began a, a new departure in Ireland, which was the lounge bar and, and less emphasis, uh, you know, where you sat for your entertainment. That was the change that, that was coming there. So you, you, you listened. You didn't dance really to the make and, and, and dance. You, you, you listened to them. And that's changed. I tell my ma when I go home, the boys won't leave the girls alone. They pull my hair, they stole my comb, but that's all right till I go. But it was fantastic to go down there and the excitement and whatever. And to see the, the Tommy Makeham and the Clancy Brothers playing, it was just wonderful. That was the first time I was ever in a... In a ballroom or in Fairyland. I was only going to school at the time. Ellen from Drumshambo has this on the Clancy Brothers. I always was made to believe that the Clancy Brothers brought the biggest crowd the Mayflower ever had. I hold the record for the biggest crowd in the Mayflower ballroom. Now, maybe I'm wrong on that. We played, which is hard to believe, but we played to 10,000 people a week. So 79, 80 and 81 probably, probably three years, yeah. We did enormous, enormous business, 1980. And yeah. do we know and what the record is? They're afraid to tell us for, sa- for health and safety reasons, but they said there was never a bigger crowd in this ballroom, never. And we held the record in several ballrooms around the country in Mill Street and places like that. Uh, Louis Walsh, who was managing uh, Westlife at the time, uh, said to me, he said, um, uh, Sean, I, I know that you, you, you play to 10,000 people a week. Uh, he said, could, could you prove it? I said, why do you want me to prove it, Louis? He said, because Westlife don't believe it. He said, that's 500,000 people a year. And I said, that's right. He said, uh, I would really love to show them that. I said, well, anytime you want to, I will ask Paddy's wife, Paddy is deceased now, uh, for, for, for the diaries if they're still in existence. So, yeah, it was an enormous time. And I won Best Pop Singer, the band won Best Pop Band. Joe Dolan was second and Red Hurley was third. And the first call I got of congratulations was from Joe Dolan. And he said, I'll get you next year, Dowdy. That's the words he said. And so we've come to the end of programme two. My thanks to everyone who I spoke to on this programme. A reminder, if you'd like to get more information on this programme, previous programmes or future programmes, you can check out my Twitter page at Mike's Powerplay for more information. So, from myself, Mike Mulvihill, thank you for listening to this and goodbye.